Welcome to the third episode of Unapologetic. Today we'll be talking about feminism and the ways in which patriarchy works and it affects the way women interact with other women. And we'll mostly at first talk about internalized misogyny and look at other ways in which uh, intersectionalities come into play. My name is Maria. I'm Anna. And I'm Sarah. Just a small disclaimer before we start, just like other, the other times, uh, we are sociology students, so this is not a podcast made by professionals, so we wanted to let you know that again. And a second disclaimer, we do not wish to speak for any particular group, this is just our own research and opinions, so don't take this as a professional advice in any kind of form. Uh, but this time at least we're the three of us in Amsterdam, so we are not blaming any technological issues on Zoom, uh, which is really exciting. And yeah, I think we can get started now. Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place. I wonder how. And everybody sings in peace. There's only one thing that we need. It's unapologetic. So starting off, I would like to first define internalized misogyny as the prejudiced behavior and beliefs against women from women. And we're kind of thinking of talking about this because, yeah, it, during March was Women's Day and, yeah, it gives a lot to think in terms of feminism and we ask women what's our role in, I guess, how the patriarchy works. <laughs> yeah, and how it's upheld through the actions of women against women as well, not just how men might uh, kind of uphold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also wanted to say about the fact that like internalized misogyny is everywhere and I think it's really important for us, especially uh, for people that consider themselves feminists, to really think about ways in which patriarchy exists within us and how we can be more aware of it and try to kind of work against our really internalized horrible thoughts against ourselves and other women. Yeah, and I also wanted to t- to make a small note that like uh, hate against women by women is not only relevant to women <laughs> but it's also like something that a lot of marginalized groups tend to feel and that happens because there's so many stereotypes associated with certain groups especially ones that are marginalized and trying to get out of that and show more negative emotions and thoughts towards your own kind sometimes is a way to cope and there's a term called scapegoating which is basically the idea that within certain groups um, you believe that you can blame your problems into people that are less advantaged than you or are within your own group and therefore you tend to not really focus on the systematic problems or the oppressors that may be causing you harm but um, more on other people that you somehow see as worse than you. Yeah, so I guess by talking today about how there can be some kind of female misogyny, so women hating on women, we do not mean to say that that's the root of all problems. It's more of a side problem of patriarchy and how this like macro structure works. So it's not like, yes, let's just like, you know, women loving all women because yes, of course, that's great. But there is the root cause of all this is just the systemic workings of patriarchy 
Yeah, and actually, like, this is important because I feel like sometimes we, as women, blame women for this behavior. But at the end of the day, it's important to blame the system instead of, like, individuals. Yeah, exactly. And we don't want to shame any woman that has or is still uh, showing this sort of behavior because we, in our past as well, um, might have experienced, like, the um, feeling of, like, oh, I'm not like them, I'm... I don't want to associate myself with a, a marginalized group. And so it's not up to individuals. It's just something that we all need to be more aware of and try to work towards um, dismantling. And uh, I wanted to sort of start making connections to theory by talking about a study called The Fabric of Internalized Sexism, um, where the researchers found that women were using sexist talk to objectify and undermine women Uh, around them even when men were not around so it really shows the internalized ways in which uh, a lot of women tend to talk about other women and undermine them and try to lift themselves up from that i think it really comes to prove that it's not even about you know shaming other women when you're in front of a man to like measure up to them it gets to the point that you would shame or you know undermine other women even when there is no male gaze around you we still have these behaviors very very internalized and we don't even realize that this is this is a way of misogyny in a way yeah and actually the first example that comes to my mind on this is slash shaming uh, i think yeah. we've all ex- experienced that um yeah many times like there is like no guy around and you're just like oh can you believe like she slept with so many people or as if it was something you know wrong or to be ashamed of yeah and i I, in general this like uh women hating women i remember in middle school or something i would always have friends that would be like oh i don't want to hang out with girls there's so much drama i would rather just hang out with boys and like joke around because you can joke with them whereas women are so sensitive and stuff like that and uh, it really like I don't know that's that's the first thing I think about when I think about this sort of thing yeah I think it's very connected to the media as well I feel like growing up um, every movie that I would watch it was always like the two girls and one is like the you know the cool girl and like and the other one is like kind of like the loser uh, because you know she doesn't like makeup and all of that and in the middle it's always a man like who is the guy gonna pick, you know? And it kind of like shows that um, at the end of the day, women should base their worth uh, whether or not like a man likes them. And like, it's always, who who's gonna choose, you know? And that's where all the competition between women starts. I think uh, in our research for this episode, we found three main tropes that we see in the media. Uh, they kind of are interrelated, but as Sarah was saying, one of them is the cool girl trope. Um, We'll explain them in a minute, but then you have the I'm not like other girls girl and the pick me girl. Um. Yeah, and in general, like these sort of things uh, we saw a lot uh, while growing up, at least we did, like uh, from the 90s until now, there's always been like the main character was always this girl that was super cool and she was effortlessly beautiful and would eat a lot, but was really cool. And then, yeah, it's again really surrounding the fact that eventually it was the guy that was going to pick her because he was cooler. And uh, even if girls were not cool, eventually they would like get prettier over the, the movie or the show and we would appreciate them because they were 
really beautiful and it really has to do with the male gaze and like regardless of how cool you are you also have to remain really hot and but yeah. I think the key issue here is that they were cool because they were not like other girls and yeah. Yeah. so they were in this superior place just because they were not like girls which means inherently means that girls are something like inferior yes. yeah and that's but, where yeah. the problem is I think the cool part is very much connected to what we associate to being a man yeah. so yeah the thing about this course it's like they're like men but in a woman's body <laughs> exactly it's, yeah. it, I think a lot of it especially in movies and also sometimes in in reality that ends up happening because we we really just see that in movies and we want that to be us um, is the fact that yeah, you are a woman that is basically just a man's fantasy. And like the ones we see in the movies are literally just unattainable because you have to be, you have to not be better than the man. You have to not challenge anyone. You have to always really be really hot. You have to eat really trashy food, but still remain really yes. skinny and all these things that are really unattainable. And they're basically a myth because the cool girl can't really exist. Or if she does, she only exists within a time frame because eventually it's really tiring to just perform a certain way for your whole life. Yeah, and it's just... You can see how much of a creation it is of, like, the male gaze. Yeah. And it's very important to notice that, like, at the very basis of all of this, it's that you need to be hot. I mean, like, what is determined as hot, mm. of course. Yeah, because you could even be this um, girl that's into sports and likes to eat and likes video games, which, again, are essentially things that are linked to men but if you're not hot you are not a cool girl so yeah. you are a cool girl if you're hot and you're basically a boy which uh, again we don't feel like there are boy and girls things to do this is just like in the mainstream yeah like yes. stereotype stereotypically way of being but um yeah another i think really good um i don't know if it's a good representation but it's at least um a character that breaks this cool girl trope it's the one in Gone Girl uh, which has a very famous uh, monologue. monologue in which she explains and kind of like calls out this trope make love to girl I was pretending to be cool girl men always use that don't they as their defining compliment she's a cool girl Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is game. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin loving manner. She likes what he likes. So evidently, he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga. If he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I think what is essential in um, The Cool Girl is this kind of like es essentialism um, of being a woman. Like all women are like very monolithic and this woman is like dissociating herself from this monolithic um, identity. So yeah, we want to talk about essentialism. So I'm going to give a short definition right now. So. Essentialism is the social categories being viewed as being grounded on underlying natural structures instead of being socially constructed. So basically, in this case, we see how uh, a lot of the time women are perceived to be a certain way. They're perceived to uh, be really emotional, but um, at the same time, 
being able to do everything at once and being hot and being but they're also superficial and dumb yeah and so there's there's a really specific way of seeing women and that this is just the way they're meant to be it's like part of biology and this is kind of wrong because we can't assume that uh, like half the population of the world is one thing because that's really problematic because it's obviously not true yeah and I actually notice how all the um, characteristics that you just mentioned are very much associated with femininity mm. um, and I think that's part of the essentialist argument yeah femininity is seen is inherent to women and masculinity to men and we associate certain characteristics to um, femininity so like usually it's weakness and it's being dumb and you know being blonde um but for men it's about like being strong and being very protective on the feminine side of which is the woman yeah so if you take this essentialist definition and you start considering men and women as a um social category rather than something natural all of this just crumbles down and it makes no sense anymore to assume that half the population is gonna be naturally feminine and naturally all of these things yeah. we already described yeah because if we it's really important to also think about like androgynous people or like people that do not wish to be those things and but like i feel like there is androgyny but there's also like most people do not align with these stereotypes of what a man and what a woman is so then it's really sort of dangerous to assume that those are I think are we need a quick definition of androgyny. In case you don't know what andro- androgyny is, it's basically just uh, a person that likes to show themselves in ways that are more gender-bending, I guess. Like, they don't just wear a dress all the time or they don't um, just wear pants all the time. I don't know how to yeah, exactly describe binary. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, It can get people confused, basically. Yeah, so someone that looks androgynous is someone that won't easily be identified as either a man or woman. So we're talking of essentialism and how this kind of puts all women in the same same bag and this bag it's um, defined by feminine qualities. So femininity is conceived as this, I guess, weaker form. Uh, and women need to be feminine though but there is a clear double standard here because if you're too feminine that's also bad so basically women can never win in this game yeah Yeah, because like being really feminine uh, somehow assumes that you're very shallow we see this with how feminine interests or like obviously that's not really the case it's like interests that are associated with femininity are usually like ah putting on makeup caring about uh, your appearance and um, the stereotypes about women being very shallow and not caring, not being smart and all these things. And so there's a, a big divide here because no matter what happens, you can never really win because even if you care about your appearance and you are very feminine, you're perceived as stupid and as lesser than. But if you're being androgynous and you are acting very masculine, then you're trying to be like the boys and you're just pretending and that's not good either. Yeah, and I feel like um, what is usually associated with like hyperfemininity is like you're superficial, but like with masculinity, it's like more like oh, then you're a bitch, you know? Yeah, yeah. and like you care too much, you challenge too much. That's not your position. This isn't 
a female thing to do. Yeah, it's not essential. It's no, that's all the nature of women. Yeah. Linking mm. back to the cool girl trope, the cool girl likes this like more masculine kind of interest. So she's yeah. not like those feminine superficial girls, but she will never challenge the guy. So it's this fine line between being a... Uh, I think there, there is like a pretty well-known like illustration that has a woman being uh, assertive and it's like, okay, if you're assertive and you're a woman, you're bossy, but if you're uh, assertive yes. and you're a man, you're a boss, a leader, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, um, and standards. Yeah, exactly. So the kind of the same thing goes on here. So if you are too feminine, that's bad. And we talked about femphobia a bit in the last episode, uh, meaning kind of the hatred and... Yeah, I would say hatred towards anything that's considered feminine. And then on the other hand, if a woman doesn't comply with that femininity, she's also uh, punished for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think the femphobia is a real problem because a lot of the times, again, as we said before, like if you're interested in anything that is considered feminine, that is always a bad thing and it's looked down upon. And that's so many times the case. Like if if women like something, then it's inferior do anything else if it's nail art if it's makeup if it's uh liking a certain band um all these sorts of things are, like if they're associated with like teenage girls specifically then it's just like stupid mm. whereas if guys for example um like video games um then that's a higher standard to enjoy than like art of nails for some reason I, a few weeks ago I got my nails done into acrylics and they were really long and beautiful but as soon as I told my parents I was doing it that they were like oh so you are gonna be like a cashier you know like a supermarket cashier so like it kind of like it's nothing against cashiers but it's just like I was just put into like a stereotype of a person that has a very low skilled job and so to me, that was very telling of all the stereotypes that go around very feminine things to do. Yeah. Yeah, and actually going back to the essentialist argument, there are so many dangers to this. So, for example, we all know her, J.K. Rowling, um, big turf. So, yeah. Explain what turfs yes. are. So, turfs are trans-exclusive uh, radical feminists. I don't know what we're calling them, feminists, but it's basically, I think, this is where the essentialist argument goes very far you know because a woman who is um seen as very very connected to being a a biological woman so a cisgender woman so of course these feminists are going to exclude trans women from being a woman because they aren't seen as inerrant they're just seen as men dressing like women yeah and yeah i think a lot of people that believe that uh, are saying that like oh you don't have the same struggles as us because we were born to have periods and we're born to to live in in a way that is oppressing us but uh, trans women are women and they are also oppressed and so pretending like you're somehow more oppressed than that uh, trans women are not being taken care of by feminism is um, quite a problematic idea in in our opinion at least yeah so yeah i guess as sarah was saying turf it's itself a branch of feminism because at least it's in the name then it's debatable how feminist it is of theirs but um this brings me to our 
kind of final point on how yeah how can we see hate of women against women from a more macro perspective so it's not only in the interactions that we have but um how there are certain branches and movements within feminism that also um, discriminate against women themselves and trans-exclusionary radical feminists are clearly an example of that because in their way of thinking they are at the same time hating upon trans women yeah and i think in general uh we kind of want to focus with this episode a lot on conflict that exists within the feminist movement or against women in general because we find that um conflict uh, from women against women is usually less productive because the main issue that we would wish to fight is patriarchy in its systemic nature and we see how often it works to kind of undermine women and by fighting each other there is less opportunity to fight against the system itself and so there's a lot of ways in which uh, feminist movements are often against each other there's ones that are more intersectional, there's ones that are less intersectional, there's ones that are a lot more about um, environmentalism. And so all these different branches um, can move forward, but the fact that there's a lot of conflict between those can be really detrimental to the feminist movement as a whole. Another um, branch maybe that we consider to be harmful yeah, would be white feminism. This is a term that I only encountered very recently and I'm really surprised because basically white feminism, it's uh, a feminist rhetoric that only advocates for the rights of cis, white, middle, high class, able-bodied, heterosexual women, um, which by default makes all other women lesser in quotation marks because they're not um and it can be extremely harmful actually yeah um, i think what you're saying makes total sense but also i feel like many white feminists they don't realize uh that they're advocating only for a certain kind of woman so for example when a woman of color speaks up and talks about how white these spaces are then this type of feminists are like oh now you're being divided divisive because you know we're here for women like yeah, but women is not a monolithic identity. Um, so yeah, they always deem um, like women that don't fall in that spectrum as divisive and like mm-hmm. they don't actually care for like woman liberation. Yes, the divis- divisive argument, I've heard it so many times. I think something that's really um, useful to understand why that's not the case actually, it's the theory by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's actually a lawyer. Yes. Yes, and um, she coined the term intersectionality, which we've been using so much throughout the podcast. And basically she argues that um, feminism at the moment, it's enacting in a single axis framework. So there's only one axis, you're either female or male, or you're either black or white. And that doesn't account for all the intersections between a person's identity. And these intersections are crucial if you want to include in this feminist fight people that fall within, well, like, whose whose identity is just more complex than saying, I'm a white woman. 
Um, and then that's why in the feminist fight we should include it to be anti-racist, decolonialist, environmentalist. It's not something that can just fall into like, yes, it's only about your sex or your gender. Yeah, because those things intersect in this people that are fighting against sexism while at the same time fighting against racism and against um, like migration policies and all sorts of things. And there's different ways in which people can be oppressed. And so it's important to see those intersections and understand that um, a feminism is not really doing what it's supposed to if it's not actually empowering all women because um, if there's only one monolith then we fail to help other women that are not really represented in this white feminism yeah and I think it's also about like understanding how much of this is actually rooted in like colonization and um, racism you know fat phobia and you know um, misogyny Um, and I think that's what actual feminism like intersectional feminist does like question the system question you know capitalism mm -hmm. colonialism everything try to like change your mind like change your, the way you think yeah. about the world itself there is also a really interesting quote that i found uh of crenshaw and i'm just gonna read it out because it's easier uh she says it is somewhat ironic that those concerned with alleviating the ills of racism and sexism should adopt such a top-down approach to discrimination If their efforts instead began with addressing the needs and problems of those who are most disadvantaged and with restructuring and remaking the world where necessary, then others who are singularly disadvantaged would also benefit. So she claims that there are people that are single, doubly or triple or, you know, disadvantaged in more ways. So, for example, uh, if you are a white woman, you are disadvantaged because you are a woman. But then if you are a trans, black woman then you're disadvantaged in three ways because sadly patriarchy is beneficial for cis white males and so if you put that person that has multiple ways of disadvantage in the center of your fight then you're immediately just advocating for people that have less disadvantage so it doesn't make any sense to only advocate for white women's rights when you are in that way it's just excluding more people yeah i think this is so important um Because I feel like right now we hear like many white women, but in general also men, um, since there's more importance given to like marginalized groups and then the less marginalized groups are like, oh, but what about us? You know, like we're helping like people of color, but what about like, you know, white people? Yeah, just basically advocating for people that have lesser advantages than you does not mean that they're fighting against you. They're just fighting for an equal footing basically yeah. like if you are white and someone is saying there's a race problem you can't just say yeah but i'm not racist that's not my problem like i also have my own problems that's not going to solve anything yes exactly and like why women um right now being like yeah but we're women as well yes of course <laughs> we are um but it's important that we fight for like the most marginalized groups mm -hmm. without being saviors but um, yeah fight mm -hmm. for them I with them I think then in that uh, sense, another example of uh, the harmful effects of white feminism is in relation with uh, Muslim women. Mm. Oh, yes. Um, there is a great book uh, called It's Not About the Burqa, which is edited by Mariam Khan. And one of the essays is actually by her. And she says how um, harmful it is 
for someone to identify as a feminist but then see that this mainstream feminism just doesn't reflect or stand by your identity because mainstream white feminism has many um yeah in many ways uh, goes against masculine identity she she claims um so it is um counterproductive i'd say to have a form of feminism that just yeah uh, undermines women's identity yeah i think it's also important to think about it in the context of like taking it outside of a western perspective because I feel like so often feminism is like, oh yeah, we need to empower women to go into leadership positions and break the glass ceiling and all those sorts of things. But then they take those ideologies from the West and bring them to other contexts where that doesn't work as well. For example, um, like you said, there's often like Islamophobia being introduced within the feminist movement as well. And they're like, they go into different countries and they say, oh, these women are so oppressed, we're gonna help them empower them and mm-hmm. turn them into leaders because that's how we know and that's that's the way that's right. Whereas those women can be empowered in many different other ways that are not what in the West is perceived as empowered and the girly boss and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, I think um, a book that kind of reflects that ideology, it's Feminism for the 99%. Oh, yes. um, this book as we were saying before, advocates for an intersectional perspective, uh, yeah, an intersectional form of feminism that um, takes into account multiple um, identities. Identities, yes, of uh, women. And yeah, actually, like you know, um, I was reading this book last year. The name is "Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race," mm-hmm. um, and you know. Um, the author was talking about if we're not if our feminism is not intersectional then sure maybe we can you know switch all the white men in power with like white women in power but is anything gonna change like i don't think so because yeah if an oppressor is still an oppressor regardless of whether they're a woman or a man it's not gonna change too much it brings me back to a study uh, that i read recently by michelle de goit which i probably mispronounced i'm sorry but basically her research showed that women in powerful positions uh, that were mostly in male-dominated spaces uh, found it really hard to advocate for other women in their in their industries because they themselves felt really unworry, unworthy of their position and they felt like they were really worried about their social standing. And so here again we see how a lot of women are not able to really stand with other women and are a lot more likely to go against them just because they themselves feel like in order to survive in this world, they need to act in a way that is more appropriate to to fit into a male-dominated space. And therefore, it's hard for them to just um, empower other women. Yeah, I feel like we see this with like uh, women politicians. Um, not all of them. We have the amazing AOC. Um, <laughs> but so many, especially like in Europe, I feel, uh, they kind of have to fit into this box with, like, you're not too woman like you're not empathetic you have to be like very cold but at the same time like not act like a man and still be in your position as a woman uh but at the end of the day that's very dangerous to like marginalize women so it's basically not about just putting women in male-dominated spaces because that is just as counterproductive as not having women there yeah we need to 
create spaces that are encouraging of women being themselves, which encompasses uh, the understanding that women are not all the same. There's no yes. monolithic understanding of women, and neither there is of feminism. Um, I think what we learned from uh, today and just doing research for this episode is that feminism is very context-bound. So, for example, personally, when I came to Europe, I thought the feminism here was really different from what it's like in Latin America. And I was like, yeah, like, wait, like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why is it this way? And then it's just about understanding the needs of women and the forms of oppression that women undergo in each part of the world. And that doesn't make make their uh, experiences any less valid or doesn't... Um, justificate that someone is going to come from somewhere else to tell you how your feminism should look like. Yeah. So we covered many topics today. We went from internalized misogyny to tropes to um, the essentialist argument to terps, uh, white feminism and intersectional feminism. And the main thing we wanted to take from this episode this week, well, this month, <laughs> is uh, that... We really want you to really think about what feminism means to you and in ways in which you might have accidentally, uh, without intending to, um, perpetrated ideas by the patriarchy and how maybe you yourself have uh, judged other women based on whether they were a slut or they were uh, putting too much makeup on or they were acting stupid and all these things. Maybe they weren't. <laughs> and it was just patriarchy saying that. Yes, so that's it for this episode. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram to get some more recommendations on readings and things to watch and things to listen to. And yeah, we'll see you next month with a new category. We're going to be talking about sexuality. So yes, be excited for that. See you. Bye. Bye.